Thanks for listening to Gamblers. If you like this show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative offerings, like Icons Club, a history of the NBA told through the voices of its most legendary players, or Gene and Roger, a look back on two of the most famous film critics ever and how their influence stretches to modern media. Or check out 22 Goals, a series touring nearly a century of World Cup history through the lens of 22 of the most iconic goals ever scored. Thanks for listening. Now let's go make some wagers. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. I'm playing roulette, a very old game, in one of the oldest casinos in the world, the Casino de Monte Carlo in Monaco. I came to Monaco, the small but opulent principality on the cliffs overlooking the French Riviera, home to this celebrated and storied casino, to gamble on a very old game. But not this one. Roulette isn't nearly old enough. The game I'm here for is actually centuries older, dating back to at least the 16th century, maybe even before that. Some people even argue that it's the oldest board game in the world. You won't find this game in any casino. You're more likely to find it on the other side of the checkerboard in your grandmother's closet, either there or on the deck of one of the hundreds of yachts docked up and down the Monaco coastline. I'm here to gamble on backgammon. Big roll, big roll. That was exciting. Yeah. Um, That's why we love this game. I've come to Monaco for the Backgammon World Championship, which has been held here for the last 42 years. It's an event that attracts players from around the globe, an international gathering of elite games players, wealthy hobbyists, and shark-tooth hustlers. For six days, nearly 200 players will compete in a double elimination tournament to win the title of world champion and the first prize of 50,000 euros. Welcome to the World Backgammon Championship. Because at this tournament, I'm not a contestant, and I'm not alone. I'm here with Alex Lehman and Sander Lilock, two professional gamblers who are here not only to try to win the world championship, but also to book it. Alex and Sander will set a price on every remaining player each day, and they'll take bets from anyone who wants action, including from me. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, my name is David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Well, I think Monte Carlo here is usually where the big money game action uh, happens. Every year there's typically some high stakes action going on. 
Uh, yeah, I've seen players play for five days straight, barely sleeping, uh, leaving the room at night, coming back next morning, they're still playing. <laughs> That's Mark Olson, the CEO of Backgammon Galaxy. They've taken over running the world championship this year. They kind of saved the tournament. But so far, we're keeping up with the tradition, staying here in Monaco. The game of backgammon is very international and very old. Yeah, it's certifiably ancient. That's Oliver Rader, author of the book Seven Games, A Human History. As with any ancient history, things get a little fuzzy, but the game is thousands of years old, has very, very similar ancestors that have been found in Egyptian burial mounds and uh, in the relics of ancient Rome. And you can sort of trace invasions and conquests by where you find backgammon boards. So these famous Egyptology expeditions in the 20s and 30s, they would smash into a burial tomb and one of the first things they found would be this really fancy backgammon set that looks almost exactly like the backgammon that we play today. So you'd be excused for not guessing that the first world championship was held in the Bahamas in 1964. The modern popularity of the game in the U.S. was the work of one fervent backgammon fan named Prince Alexis Obolensky, a sort of Russian socialite who emigrated to the U.S., split his time between New York and Florida. And Obolensky had one singular goal in his life, and that goal was to make backgammon popular. So he spread it in high-priced gentlemen's clubs in New York City, among the beach and pool goers in Florida, and the sort of culmination of ensnaring these rich swells to the game of backgammon was getting them all together for a world championship. And that happens at a luxury hotel in the Bahamas where you know, his rich socialite friends all got together and to play this game that he had, that he had popularized. The Bahamas and the Monte Carlo, like, they have something in common, right? There's this sort of luxe places, like these jet-set places. And I think the tournaments, the world championships were in places like these because that's its sort of culture, right? Even, even today, sort of decades removed from Obolensky and Bond films and, and the Playboy Mansion, that's still sort of like the sheen of backgammon. And, you know, I, it's still played at these fancy clubs on the Upper East Side, of course, and it sort of retains, retains this aura. All these years later, people still flock to Monaco, but it's not for the money. The winner of the world championship only gets 50,000 euros. To some, that money is major. Others are chasing the glory of being world champion. But for a lot of these players, the tournament is just an excuse to come to Monte Carlo and do what everybody does here. Gamble. Businessmen, uh, wealthy people, oligarchs, they play backgammon. You get a story now and then where you hear, okay, this Hollywood A-list actor was playing against this guy for an obscene amount of money. We just don't know about it. The buy-in for the world championship is 1,000 euros, a relatively modest sum. The real money is found in side action. Money games played at night after the tournament rounds wrap up. 76 times 300, right? But it still helps to have a little extra motivation in the tournament. So for years, players would bet on themselves, either with a bookmaker or through a Calcutta auction tournament organizers held every year, to make their potential prize a bit more lucrative. 
Here's a clip from a BBC documentary about the 1985 World Championship where players like Paul McGreal were bid on by gamblers like Amarillo Slim Preston. You know, the minimum bet's 100 pounds or 1,000 francs or $100, and most people bet a bit more than that. How much do the players pay to join in, and how much could they end up winning? Here they have nearly 200 players for $750 each. It's $150,000 in prize money. This Calcutta auction is similar to a horse racing sweepstakes. In this case, each of the players is sold to the highest bidder. All the money goes into a jackpot, which is then shared out to the people who were lucky enough or astute enough to have bought the winner or the runner-up. This year, Alex Lehman has volunteered to book the tournament, something he's done in the past. It's a big undertaking. Taking bets from all comers on all the players requires a big bankroll, not to mention lots of guts. After all, even if they shade the odds in their favor, the house isn't necessarily guaranteed to win. It also involves a lot of work. And I think the entries will be done by around midnight tonight. That's when we'll have the, we'll know all the pairings and all that stuff so then we can make the right odds and print the sheets out. Alex is a high-stakes gambler from New York though today he and his family live in Portugal. Alex was introduced to gambling by a fellow chess player he met in college in Buffalo, Matvi Natanzan, who is better known in these circles as Falafel. I essentially played so much chess that I dropped out of school. <laughs> and then uh, Falafel and I went to New York City, uh, to Washington Square Park, where he stayed there full-time. He literally slept in the park. I had a job out on Long Island, and I would come in on the weekends and play. Alex eventually went back to school and earned an advanced degree in physics. But while Alex was studying physics, Falafel was learning a new game, backgammon. Backgammon wasn't like chess. You could make real money playing backgammon. And he did. He went from playing a couple of bucks a game in Washington Square Park to finding wealthy marks who would play for thousands of dollars a game, like the French entrepreneur Marc Armand Rousseau who was known in the gambling world as the Crocodile. So Crocodile, 2001, 2002, would play in the Coterie. He lost millions to the back of the community, and millions in cash, and then gold bars, and jewelry, and watches. And Flava went from, you know, me driving him out to Long Island to take a shower to having hundreds of thousands of dollars in his pocket, and... Uh, Alex joined Falafel in the high-stakes backgammon scene, eventually running his own chess and backgammon club in New York City. Falafel went on to become one of the most talented and famous backgammon players in the world, earning a fortune at the game and blowing it all betting on sports. He died of cancer in 2020 at the age of 51. Alex went on to earn millions gambling on all sorts of games, especially poker, where he made a ton of money grinding online during the early days of the poker boom. After a while, he realized playing poker was mostly mechanical. He trained himself to make the same plays over and over. And I said, well, I'm basically a robot. So he developed bots to play for him. And they won. A lot. He started hiring people, built his robot empire into a company, and he cleaned up. It was good. We, had a we, we would make a couple million a year, but we had a lot of mouths to feed, five, ten guys or something like that, so... You know, but good way to make a living and uh, lived in South France. And, <laughs> you know. He's lived in Europe for a long time, 
first coming here to play in the Backgammon World Championships in 2004. Well, the first time <laughs> I left the United States was because I was coming to the tournament here and it was cheaper to rent an apartment in Nice than for an entire year than to stay in the hotel here. And he's played in this event nearly every year since. Though by his own admission, he doesn't expect to win it anytime soon. My expectation in a tournament of this size is exactly however many people are in the field. So when I enter this thing, I, I lose 200 bucks by every time I enter this tournament. He comes here to Monte Carlo every year to be around old friends, to commune with like-minded games players. Backgammon is, for me, it's still an opportunity to make money at the same time as having social um, contact. Also, in the gambling world, the average IQ of people that you're talking to is through the roof, right? You don't, you, uh, like in this room that we're sitting in right now, it's got to be 50% higher average IQ than the rest of the world. It's a thinker's game, to be sure. But the strategy, the game, isn't why Alex is here in Monte Carlo. He's here to gamble. And along with betting on the tournament itself, he's scouting side games being played for money. The only money game going on in the room is Freddie Charminar and Stuart Duncan. Okay. Two, two older gentlemen. Uh-huh. So Stuart is... Possibly the stupidest person in this room by a lot, maybe in the world. Fr- Freddie follows him around. They, pl- they play for 500 a point, and uh, yeah, Stuart just loses his lungs. And uh, but Freddie's an old-time hustler and uh, known for uh, yeah, winning when he shouldn't, <laughs> if that's uh, clear enough. <laughs> and. Uh, but people like him. He's been around for 100 years. And like, Is he playing all the tournaments, though? No, he comes to the big ones. and Just to play in side action? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he just likes to watch the dice roll and give his money away. So yeah. Can we, you get we, a game with him or you know? Yeah, it's not worth it for me these days, but, yeah, it used to be I would stand in line to go get in there. Now I, now I couldn't be bothered. If you came here and you're looking for money action, the trick is... Um, it depends on what kind of action. If you're looking for Stuart Duncan action, then you have to wait in line and, and do something uh, special to get him to play you. But if you just want to play, no problem. Sit down and any one of these guys will play you for 500 anytime. So, um, yeah, it's pretty much we know every player in the world that we're happy to, that we don't want to play, and everyone else we're happy to play. <laughs> so. When Alex says we, he means himself and his partner. He's sharing action this week with another backgammon player, one who is, well, pretty good. Well, that was a long time ago in, uh, in a town far, far away, near Copenhagen. Uh, they had a tradition for you play like chess and backgammon. On the street, you know, you play with tourists for like, uh, you know, maybe like a dollar or five dollars. And that's how I started, basically. Sander Lilop is a 40-year-old professional gambler from Copenhagen. Like Alex, he plays a lot of games. And he plays them well. He's made nearly two million dollars playing poker, including winning the 2007 European Poker Tour main event. We have a new champion. A great result, Sander Lyloff of Denmark wins the title and wins himself 1.2 million euros. 
But soon after winning that event, he gave up on poker. But after that, I decided to take on uh, the great Gus Hansen in the back end game. And this says it was my biggest, I lost $100,000 uh, or euros, whatever it was. Gus Hansen is another professional gambler from Copenhagen. He's won over $11 million playing poker. And evidently, he plays backgammon a lot better than Sander thought. I wouldn't presume to take him on in poker, but uh, backgammon, I thought I was all right. And, uh, but he gave me a good lesson. But after that, I just, I couldn't get myself to grind poker, you know, I couldn't. So, Gus cured me. That's when it all stopped. I was winning maybe $1,000, maybe $1,000 a day. And one day I lost 100. And just like the idea of uh, grinding it all back, you know, thousand dollars at a time you know uh, you know I just I couldn't I couldn't really face it and and that's when I found sports betting which was uh, way different <laughs> today Sanders still earns much of his living as a sports better mainly on soccer if I have to pick like a thing on earth that I'm best at <laughs> you know it's not uh, it's not sports betting it's not trading it's not cooking it's not making love you know it's not being a good dad it's it's playing backgammon. So I, it's hard, sort of hard for me to give that up. I and also like Alex, mm -hmm. Sander isn't here to win the world championship of backgammon. I wrote that off like a long time ago. You did? Like I think in the last, in the last 10 years, I think I played one time. And I, I, I always come, but... but um, the title doesn't matter. The title doesn't matter to me. Just the money. Right. <laughs> well, not, not only the money, but like... It's like, I don't need to win a title to know that I'm the best or second best, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, whoever wins the world championship, you know, I'm happy to, uh, to play them for uh, whatever they won, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of the way I think about it. Well, know? that's what I mean by the money. Sander and Alex hope to make money in side games with other players and hangers-on here at the event. But for a player as good and as well-known as Sander, it's increasingly difficult to find a good money game. He has to cast a pretty wide net to catch a fish these days. Well, I mean, I, there's a bunch of games. You know, this is Monte Carlo. You know, people, they go out on yachts and boats and they... It's like uh, millionaires gambling against billionaires. And, uh, and that, that's some good action, you know? It's sort of got to be like, a, like a, a good vibe where, like, like I was uh, explaining before, you know, like everybody thinks that, that they're the best, right? So... Uh, so take a guy like me, you know, people can like Google my name on the internet. There'll be like a hundred backgammon uh, videos and people will say I'm the best. And, you know, and that that's the end of that game, you know. <laughs> oh, it's really hard. You know, I have, I have maybe three competitive games like in the world. I have a guy in, in Japan. If I go to Japan, he, he like he wants to play uh, some games for maybe 1,000 point, 2,000 point. And uh of course, there's, there's a great Gus Hansen, you know, like uh, we're both from Copenhagen. So sometimes we we play, but because the information is so public, it's not many people that want to like uh, take take a chance. Hopefully there will be people here in Monte Carlo who have enough gamble in them to make a game with Sander and give him some action. But if not, maybe bookmaking will provide some extra scratch. 
Oh yeah, well, we'll we'll see what happens. It's just easy, you know. And people it's can bet on themselves, yeah. right? Because there's there's a lot of people, you know, complaining that the entry fee is too low. But taking bets on the winners and playing in the event that presents an interesting conundrum. I had this dream that um, that I was playing the finals, but but people had you know bet such a big big amount of that I would actually lose <laughs> money if I won the final, and that would be sort of like. Uh, a funky situation, but uh, I, I'm probably about 35 to 1. I have like a 3% chance of winning or something. But now I promised my daughter I'll try to win. And, <laughs> and I promised to buy her a dog if, she, uh, <laughs> if I win. The World Championship Tournament is a double elimination event. If you lose a game, you drop to a second chance bracket. The winner of the undefeated bracket then plays the winner of the second chance bracket in the finals. The second chance winner, however, needs to win twice. Each match is a race to a certain number of points, as many as 19 in the later rounds, which helps to smooth out the luck of the dice. While any player can roll some hot dice and beat anyone in the world, it's much harder to stay lucky over the course of a race to 19. Backgammon is a game between two players, uh, each of whom control 15 checkers and it's played on a board of 24 points. That's Oliver Rader again. And in essence, backgammon is a race between these two players. You're racing to get all 15 of your checkers past the finish line, and your opponent is trying to do exactly the same thing in the opposite direction. So it's sort of a mix of a race and a battle at the same time. And you move your checkers according to the rolls of two dice. Sort of a dangerous race. And if you leave one of your checkers alone on one of these points, it can get hit by your opponent on the next turn, and that checker has to go all the way back to the beginning. So your two sort of checker armies are racing at one time and clattering into each other at the same time. But what really makes backgammon a compelling game to gamblers is a facet of the game that wasn't even introduced until the 20th century, the doubling cube. The best theory about the origins of the doubling cube are that it came from one of these sort of fancy New York clubs, uh, these gentlemen's clubs where, where games and gambling are always a big part of, you know, spending time in these oak-paneled rooms and so on. And backgammon was incredibly popular in these clubs, and some unfortunately unnamed genius sort of developed uh, this cube in New York in, in the 20s. And... The, the way the cube works is it, it looks like a die, and it's used sort of like a raise in poker is used. And so on my turn, I can turn this cube from one to two, and I'm saying to you, I want to play this game for double whatever stakes we have been playing for. And you can accept the cube, and on we go at double stakes, or you can what's called drop the cube, meaning you resign to me at the original stakes. So this, this is a modern invention, but a crucial one. A lot of uh, strong backgammon players say that using this cube correctly is a lot more difficult than moving the checkers correctly, which is already pretty difficult. And it's difficult because to use it correctly, you need to perform a very sort of rational analysis of where you're at in the game. Sometimes you need to drop the cube. Sometimes you're losing. Sometimes it's a borderline call, and knowing, you know, just shifting one checker from one point to another could be the difference between dropping and taking the cube. And the cube is mathematically the most interesting part of backgammon today. 
There are nearly 200 people entered to play in the World Championship this week. Among the field are some titans of backgammon, including two-time world champion Akiko Yazawa, the first ever woman to make the Giants a backgammon list, as well as current reigning world champion Masayuki Mochizuki, who around here is known as Mochi. Sander played Mochi in the finals of a preliminary event here this week, the High Roller, and Sander lost. I watched it from a closed-circuit TV with Alex. Please roll a five. <laughs> you have a piece of Sander? Yeah, yeah, I have his action in this. Oh my. We gotta. <laughs> we gotta pull this one out then. Oh, that's a great number. This is brutal. Just need him not getting out of there. Yeah, this looks like the end. What's these two guys' record against each other, do you know? They played the UBC finals against each other, and Mochi went beat them in that competition. Um, yeah. Mochi has the better error rate and does that. Sander is a full-time sports better, <laughs> so he does. He spends all of his time watching soccer and betting, and Mochi <laughs> spends all of his time playing backgammon. <laughs> so, uh, but as you see in this match, Mochi played at a 3.5 and Sanders at a 3.2. So Sanders actually outplayed him this match. Um, but backgammon doesn't care. <laughs> These numbers are known as PRs, which stands for performance rating. A PR measures the difference between a player's move and the best move from a program called XG, short for Extreme Gammon, the most powerful backgammon engine publicly available. The best players in the world play around a three, and the smaller the PR, the better. As the players play, everyone else watches on closed-circuit TV or streaming online while the commentators discuss the action, and XG works overtime analyzing every single play and displaying the strongest moves in the corner of the screen. According to XG, Sander played slightly better than Mochi, yet still lost. Such is backgammon. Mistakes by the player can be bailed out by the luck of the dice. And there goes my 2,500. <laughs> Barring a, a small miracle, right? Here. It's over. Yep. That's Sorry sad. about that. No worries. <laughs> Only money. Are you more happy that you played better than Mochi, or would you prefer to have uh, played worse and won? I would have played worse and won. Yeah. I take that. But only by like... <laughs> it's, it's only it's small. Close. It's like 20%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to try again? I will. Don't, I don't, will. Can you not fuck it up this time? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Knowing that he slightly outplayed the reigning world champ is little consolation to Sander or to Alex. When discussing what odds they'd give him in booking the main event, Alex figured Mochi to be one of the top favorites, roughly 30 to 1. Over breakfast the next morning, another player asked if he could bet with them. Only he didn't want to bet on one player, he wanted to bet them all. So basically he said that he wanted to bet on the field against Mochi and we asked what line he wanted and he said 10 to 1 and we said that's not fair and he said okay I'll take the other side and we said okay <laughs> you're down 10,000 <laughs> yes 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 I lose 100,000 if uh, if, he wins. if he wins yeah so So now Alex and Sander are starting off the tournament with a bet that Mochi won't win it and they're risking 100,000 euros to win 10,000 It's a hefty sweat but one that Alex believes they have much the best of. Yep. Grab the equity. Alex didn't waste a second to take the bet, because for nearly his entire life, he has made a fortune doing just this very thing, 
risking everything he can get his hands on whenever he has the best of it. Because the willingness to take an intelligent risk, according to Alex, is what makes someone not only a good gambler, but good at life. It's hard to be successful in the world. You have to be smart, you have to be crafty, you have to do all of those things. That translates to games very well. The guys who are good in business, I mean, like Victor playing over there right now, he's very successful at Goldman Sachs because he understands math. And because he understands math, he understands backgammon. Most people gamble because they want to lose. They want to punish themselves in some way. They enjoy the feeling of it, and that's what they do. It's their masochistic way of blowing off steam or whatever. And so, um, yeah, that's... And then what guys with loads of money that feel like that are, are wonderful. There's the people who care about it and are trying to make money while doing it. That's 2% of the gambling population. The rest is people who just want to gamble. The night before the first round of the main event, Mark and his team were up until 6 a.m., scrambling to make sure that everything would be ready. This was bad news for Alex and Sander because they needed Mark's help making their lines. Mark knows all the players, so he would be the handicapper here. Oh, he would help me. Alex had a computer model that could simulate the tournament and help determine probabilities for each player's winning chances. But the model would require some information about how strong each player plays. Many of them had online ratings that were public, although not always completely reliable. Some were pretty well known to Alex, but a lot of them were question marks, and Alex didn't trust himself to accurately price them. More than that, however, he didn't trust an exhausted Mark to accurately price them now either. He wanted to go through the list right now, and then he would do it off the top of his head after one hour of sleep, and then I would take... <laughs> you would be taking all the risks. ...200 to one on someone, and <laughs> that, that doesn't work. Okay, so, so what's the point? Unwilling to go into day one with half-baked lines, Alex decided to wait until round two and do it right. Uh, so the plan is round starts at two... Um, we see the results of today. By the end of the day, there'll be slow time after the round start. Then we'll do a powwow. Later that morning, as I walked into the playing hall for the start of the tournament, I noticed a crowd of people, cash clenched in their fists, crowded around a table flipping through sheaves of paper. I made my way closer to the commotion. 500 each. Yeah. Okay. US and Euro. Uh, Euro. The crowd was thumbing through packets of papers that listed all the players with odds by their names, placing bets in a frenzy. My first thought, Alex and Sander must have decided to throw caution to the wind and just book this thing. And then I saw Alex in the scrum, but he wasn't in the middle. He was in the line to bet. So Morty came out with his own book. Morty is Morton Holm another Danish player who also happens to be a former business partner of Sanders. The two of them used to bet sports together for a couple of years before parting ways in 2012. Morty's a bit older than Sander, yet is dressed in a hip windbreaker and a snapback. Like a lot of older guys around here, he seems well off and youthful. The world of gambling is filled with Peter Pans and nowhere more so than Europe. At first glance, I panicked. Morty had scooped Alex and Sander, and by extension, he had scooped me too. I came all the way to Monaco to be a fly on the wall of a backgammon bookmaking operation. But mainly, I worried that Alex and Sander would be upset at losing out on the franchise. When I made my way over to Alex, he wasn't pissed. In fact, he was happy. 
we all used to work together, and I used to run the book with Morty. Mm-hmm. And so, because we didn't come up with the lines, he came up with his own lines. But he put out some really shitty lines because he doesn't have the computer simulations that we do. The tournament format highly favors the stronger players. He's giving way too long odds on the stronger players, so I just bet into him. <laughs> this is the better way to make money, and uh, yeah, I don't have to do any work. <laughs> do you think you'll continue to bet as the event goes on? Yes, yeah, yeah, because yeah, he doesn't know what he's doing. So, uh, <laughs> Well, he, he's done this for many years, and he's used to the old format, so he's just, all of these are based off an, of an algorithm we used to use to calculate the odds, but the tournament format has changed, and he doesn't understand that. So. Yeah, take uh, I took Sander, I took Michi, and I took uh, Victor Ashkenazi. Can you show me what, what kinds of prices you got on that? Yeah, Ashkenazi, I got 50 to 1. On Michi, I got 71. And on Sander, I got 40 to 1. Oh, Sander wasn't even on the list. Right, right. He just right. had to throw a line at you on the spot. Uh-huh. Yep. What, do you th- what, do you, what did what you price those guys? Sander, Sander and Ashkenazi should be about 31 to 1. And... Uh, so says the program, <laughs> and uh, Michi should be about uh, 35 to 1, so I'm getting 70 on that, so that's a, a nice piece of equity right there. So the one concern I have about this is uh, with the bets that he's taking right now, he might lose $2 million today and not be able to pay. Just like the bet that Alex made on the field against Mochi, his instinct is to take whichever side of the bet has the best number. If Alex booked the tournament and made the lines himself, He'd shade them so he always had the best price. But Morty made the lines. And Alex thinks a lot of them are wrong. So this is the right side of the counter to be on. Betting instead of booking. From a bookie to a bookie buster. Just like that. All right, good luck to you. Yeah, players in the championship division... To their tables, please. You can check your table numbers and matches with two sides on the board and st- start immediately. Good luck, everybody. The first round of the World Championship was starting, and the crowd filed into the tournament area to take their seats. From Brazil. Okay. And you? I am from Romania. Brasilia, Romania. Haji. The 200 players came from around the world. All over the room, you could hear any number of different languages being spoken all at once. The players were young and old, well-dressed and disheveled, though most of them were men, save for a smattering of women, including the former world champion Akiko, who entered the room to much fanfare, stopping for hugs and photos with admirers. I made my way through the room to try to get to Morty to make some bets before the round began. But I was too late. He had already started playing his round. After he finished, oh, okay. I approached him to see if he'd still take any bets. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm gonna play some. Oh, you have the, you have the seeds? I have it. I haven't seen how everybody's doing, though. Yeah, sure. Okay. What, 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 what do you want? Alex. Alex Lehman. Uh-huh, and Sander, who's also. Oh, he's winning. Mm-hmm. He's, he, he's, he's like a under. definite. He's oh, he's under. not on there. No. He has a, a good draw. He will be at, at like 25. Okay. Yeah. I was a bit late to get my bets in, and the first game had finished for a lot of players, so I had to take some worse numbers than what Alex got before the round. I bet on five players. Alex, Sander, Akiko, 
Zinek Ziska, a talented young player from the Czech Republic who Oliver Rader tipped me to, and remembering Sanders' dream he had, I made a small bet on Morty at 100 to 1. Good karma, maybe. Or maybe I figured that, since nobody else was betting on him, if he won the 50K, he'd at least have the money to pay me. I asked him, when did he decide to do this? This morning, I woke up at 7. You, did, you made all the odds this morning? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you? Well, the odds didn't take, I just put down the numbers. Uh, it takes a long time to write all the names. So yeah, I just, it's 200 players. Mm-hmm. So I just wrote in uh, Excel all the players. I put uh, down uh, my ratings for them. You know, like just the PR, what I think. And then I spent like an hour. Most of the people you take bets from, are they betting on themselves or no? Yeah, they ex- I mean, I can understand the guy like Sander putting down a thousand. Steve Hammond did the same thing. Because then you win like 40,000. But you know, like most people, they bet a hundred. And they get maybe 200 to one. So they get, they win 20,000. But if they win it, the price is probably like 50 or 40. So it's not, it's not that it's, but I guess like it's a little bit of an ego thing, you know? And I guess. As the round came to a close, I caught up with Alex and Sander since I was now financially invested in their performances. I'm not sure if that's some kind of journalistic ethical breach, but I'm also not sure if I'm a journalist or not. If you're hearing this, it means that the ringer at least doesn't think it is, or maybe doesn't think I am, or both. Sander and Alex had both won. We're both still in the tournament. But perhaps more importantly, they had snared some money action. When I found them, they were bellied up to a table and Sander was already well into a money game with another player. Okay, after 10 games, I'm down three. You're so lucky. You're so fucking lucky, Steve. I know. <laughs> after all the rounds are finished, some players head off to dinner or to sightsee around Monaco. But some, like Sander and Alex, stay right here in the tournament area and keep playing. Double volume. Double How does he do it? Double volume. Fours, double threes. That was pretty sick. Why'd you take this cube, Steve? I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> double they just keep again. going. <laughs> this game in particular is one that Alex and Sander set up the day before. It's a match between Sander and a businessman named Steve. The bet is a crazy one. Sander lays Steve three to two on the match, but how much they were playing for was a mystery. And then at the end, however, whatever the score is, we roll a die, a single die, and whatever it lands on, that's how, many, how much a point we've been playing for. They play 20 games, keeping score on each game. At the end of 20, no matter who's up, they roll a single die, and that will determine what the stakes were for the games they'd been playing. Can we agree that when we roll the die at the end of the, the 20 games, the Alex had to roll? Okay. We'll roll with you. <laughs> All right, Alex rolls. All right. Double They've been playing for hours, and the table is littered with empty beer bottles, particularly around Sander. This is no handicap for him. He's no stranger to drinking when he plays, even in the tournament. The number of beers he consumes is a running joke at the event. Oh, grab this beer. Gotta chill out a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why not have his hand been too long since he took a drink, I guess, okay? Holding his beer in one hand, yeah. rolling the joker on the other hand. Yeah. I think it's the Monaco beer that Sanders drinking. I know he likes that one. Six up. Oh, uh, he fans on the two-point board. Yeah, yeah, got, I wanted You got exactly up. the roll you asked for. <laughs> now I want the cube. Oh, he forgets the cube. I gotta hit that one first. 
Sander is by far the stronger player. But that doesn't mean positions don't come up in the game that give him real problems. A lot of top backgammon players are deep calculators, spending time to figure out the mathematically correct play on each roll. Sander is known to play more by feel. He's been playing this game for so long, he's usually able to intuit the right move, even when he doesn't know precisely why it's the right move. But that isn't to say he doesn't rely on computers. When he sees a tough position and he's unsure if the move he wants to make is the right one, he stands up, takes out his phone, and snaps a photo of the board so he can analyze it later with the computer. You don't have one picture of the Mediterranean. <laughs> as the match wore on, it bounced back and forth between the two players. But as they neared the end, Sander took a commanding lead. This is why backgammon is such a great game to gamble on. Well, it's a great gambling game, you know, because the element of chance is uh, so high, you know, much higher than the skill. I was asked yesterday, what do you think that the skill versus luck like level is? And I, you know, I got to say, it's like 80% luck, 20% skill. Over the long run, the good players will win more often than the bad players. But that long run could be hours, days, weeks, even months to overcome the luck of the dice. Money games aren't always designed to give the best players unlimited runway. And the shorter the runway, the more luck plays a role. The more often bad players can win. Tonight, however, is not one of those nights. That was 20 points. So now we, uh... we roll the dice. Oh, Here, oh roll, fuck. Motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Better than average, better than average. Oh, come on, come on. The next morning, Morty is in the tournament hall bright and early with a fresh stack of sheets, a brand new set of lines for the day's rounds. Only today, he's made some adjustments. Oh, okay. That's a new wrinkle. Yeah. Today, Morty has declared that if you want to bet someone, they have to win the tournament from the undefeated bracket. They can't win in the second chance. It's a subtle but important change. And it's enough to put Alex off. So you don't want to bet today? You don't want to bet into this? No, this is 25% juice. So if you want, if you want to lose 25% of the money you bet, then you <laughs> But I guarantee he's going to have uh, like 50 arguments at the end. People are going to want to kill him because they're not going to understand. They're going to say, my guy won. There's another subtle change. Morty has printed both European-style and American-style odds on his sheet today. Morty, can I look at his sheet? <laughs> you want American or European pricing? American. <laughs> USA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You got both today? You got them both? Evidently, an American who bet with Morty yesterday didn't understand the difference and made some large bets he thought were offering much better odds than they actually were, which caused some heated conversations. Today, everything is translated. The translation is still not enough for some of the Americans to wrap their heads around. Steve from the match with Sander last night sought out Alex for some assistance. You're a math guy. Yes. That's you think. What's my settlement value right now? He had bet 1,000 euros with Morty on himself at 500 to one odds. And since Steve had won his first two matches, 
He thought he should be able to cash in now for some profit, since Morty wouldn't want to be on the hook for such a huge sum. With Morty, you should pay. You literally should pay him a hundred bucks. Here, what? You promise not to get mad when I show you the actual numbers. <laughs> okay. So Alex takes out his cell phone and pulls up an Excel spreadsheet to show Steve. So here are the actual numbers of your odds to win in this tournament. Who figures that out? Me. Oh. <laughs> so my odds to win. Yeah, but what were my odds to win the first two matches? Probably uh, almost zero. No, you had like 10% and you hit it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so right now, your true odds are 1,041 to 1. In, really? In a million simulations of this tournament with everybody's error rate the way they are. <laughs> That's your how true do, odds right how now. How do you know my error rate? Wow. <laughs> so Morty screwed me and didn't even kiss me. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, you made a bet for enjoyment. You're getting way more enjoyment out of this. And also, he's going to have to sweat a little. Right, you're playing right. a tournament for a long time. You really If you make one more round, then... You have a zero equity bet. <laughs> I have to win three rounds to have zero equity? To, to, be, to break even on your bet, yes, statistically. Oh, Meanwhile, as all this bookmaking and prop betting goes on in the background, the Batgammon World Championship is still happening. Alex is still sweating 100,000 euros on Mochi, who is currently in the second chance bracket. But as the main bracket narrowed to the final two, Sander was still alive and undefeated a sea of empty beer bottles lying in his wake. Now I know what happened. Alex Lehman was sent into the bar to, to bring a round of beers. <laughs> that's why he left the room. Now he's coming back. Oh, there we, we go. see him there with the beers. I don't think it's a round. I think that's two for Sander. <laughs> in the final round of the undefeated side of the bracket, the semifinal of the tournament, Sander plays Wilcox Snellings, who not only has the name of someone you'd imagine is very good at backgammon, but it's actually very good at backgammon. In the 1990s, Snellings dominated the world of backgammon and was widely considered to be one of, if not the best player in the world. It's also like each of these players had their era, you know, the 90s. Yeah. That was the era of Snellings. Oh, yeah, for sure. The Theros, the early 2000s, that was the era of Lilov. Much like Sander, Snellings was also an avid gambler, playing for high stakes in New York's Coterie Club. But he burned out and disappeared from tournament play and the backgammon scene for 17 years. Snellings talked about it to the announcers before his game against Sander. I think I was modestly insulted by a couple of people that are kind of friends of mine, but they said, ah, the game's passed you by, you know? Mm. And uh, yeah, I guess I took that to heart a little bit. But also, mainly, my, my son took an interest in the game uh, going back about seven years ago, and that's where I got reeled back. Sander and I have never played, so we've never oh, played wow. online, we've never played for money, we've never played a match, so th this, is yeah. our, this is it. Fans of Backgammon were buzzing with excitement about the matchup, which was going to be streamed online. What a great atmosphere it is here, huh? Yeah, isn't it amazing this, this that we have maybe the, like, I mean, two of the very top players in the field, I mean, for sure, this in the finals two, here. The match was a race to 19 points, and the early games were fairly even. I mean, he's, he's just um, so formidable, and, you know, it was a close game. I was leading. I was leading. I, I, I thought I was playing well, you know, he, he was playing well. Amazing stuff, yeah. Absolute world-class backgammon that we're watching here. And they're both so natural, you know? They're playing fast. 
And then we had a very big game um, where he, uh, he played it very well. Nearly three hours into the match, the score was 10-8 in Sanders' favor when this game came up. I had a decent lead in the match. I, I had given him a, a good cube. I, I was actually gamming him. So I thought I was going to win four points. Is this too early for, for Wilcox to let it go? He has decent structure, but a blot around it, it looks playable. He managed to turn it around. I think Wilcox has a pretty clear advantage here, isn't it? Yeah. So I think he's leading, but that should lead to not quite enough for a cube. Look at the gammon rates, Nick. Yeah. 28% gammons for, for Will, 15% gammons for Sander. Right. Super gammonish positions. This is exactly what you re want to redouble when you're trailing the match. It's a slightly better position for Wilcox, but what gives him pause is that the position is gammonish, meaning that while his edge to win might be slight, when he does manage to roll well and win, he often will get a gammon. He will bear off all his checkers before his opponent can bear off even one. And he gave me, uh, he gave me this great recube. I, I don't think that too many players would find it, actually. But in, in these sort of matches, when you're trailing, you have to you know, play a, a volatile game. So he, he gave me a really strong four cube, which was, in, in theory, it was a pass. A gammon is worth double the points. So if Sander drops this cube, he gives Wilcox two points to even the score. If he accepts it, they play on for four points. But if he takes it and then gets gammoned, he will have lost eight points. It's a huge moment. So, of course, Sander takes a photo. Okay, Sander needs a photo. Doesn't mind. <laughs> on his clock. Yeah, it's yeah, not like it's streamed. You can't find this. It's not like it's the world championship uh, <laughs> uh, final of the undefeated bracket. Sanders senses that something is amiss, and his instincts kick in. Mark had told me before the match that this was the part of Sanders' style that transcended pure calculation. I cannot uh, name any player other than Sandro Lilov, who is like a master of this. His spider senses is out of this world. You know, he's like, he just senses blunders, you know. <laughs> it's just like you just immediately, you can almost see it in his whole body expression. If he, look, if he sees a bad play, if you're just ice cold because you're under the impression that now we're gambling, so I cannot have emotions, I should just make the best equity decision. Yes, yes, but you're a human being, you're not a computer. So if, you, if you're too cold and you don't have your emotions in the game, you're not going to have that edge. You, you can't really feel the position. He then takes the cube. If you're playing against a the computer, they, they would pass, but, but I, there's just no way I'm passing this up, you know? <laughs> but you're not supposed to have these volatile um, <laughs> swingy games when you're leading in a match. I, you know, in my heart, in my soul, I'm, I'm a gambler, so I don't mind taking a pass, even though it's a, it's a bad decision. I mean, this is like, imagine a jewel in the old days and somebody takes a glove and, you know, they stab you in the face with it, you know, and now you got to pick up the glove, basically. And maybe you shouldn't be picking up the glove, <laughs> you know, but uh, there's just no way I'm not picking up that glove. And only two rolls later, disaster. Standard's down to 19% winning chances here. Now he needs to get lucky. 99.6% gammon. Yeah. Okay, so Sander needs to roll two times double sixes. Okay, that's a gammon. Okay, eight points for Snellings. Eight points for Snellings. 16-10, huge game. 
such a narrow cube decision from Sandro to take that cube. The borderline drop. Sandro chose to take it. He yeah. chose to gamble. Wilcox wins the next game, and now he leads the match 17 to 10. Two points away from victory. Normally, I, I would. When this happens, it's like you mentally resign. I mean, it's it's really hard coming back from that. You just went from have, from being like sixty uh, percent favorite to you know having like nine percent uh, chances of winning. So I, I I thought that you know it felt it felt like it was going his way that he was gonna kick me uh, out of the main tournament. Sander needs to find a way to win this game, otherwise it will be over. Whoa! Double five is a huge shot. That's how that's how you win the game. And just wow. instantly hits. No fear of being blitzed at this score. Gonna win more games, so he's gonna go for it. I'm still trailing. And but 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 I won the game and I, I, I kept on, you know, grinding I mean winning games. <laughs> Basically. Oh Sandra has the chance. Oh what a game. What a game. Wow. Onto our seven-point match territory. Uh-huh. So this is uh, a 16% match-winning chances for Sander here. Sander needs to find a way out of this. Oh, wow. Excellent shot. Excellent shot. <laughs> I mean, Sander has 28% winning chances now. <laughs> he was dead a moment ago. Now he's up to 35% winning chances. Yeah. Look at this. We're back to 50-50. Oh my gosh. 50% winning chances. This is outrageous. If Sanders slimes out of this, will Wilcox Snellings ever play backgammon again? <laughs> this is pretty brutal. I ordered a few beers, not thinking that this match was going to last long, you know? <laughs> but since I was winning and winning and winning, you know, I had a lot of beers. And in the end, you know, I, uh, I ended up being like drunk. <laughs> Yeah, has anyone counted how many beers Sanders had? I think he's on number three right now. Somewhere between six to nine, set in line there. So how can he play who's two point over, who's four the under Half a win. on six to nine beers? That's pretty crazy, actually. How <laughs> <laughs> no, he does it. I still, I, I think you're thinking about it wrong. I think I'm curious what he would play off the beers, which is probably just much worse. Like, what could he play if he wasn't drunk? <laughs> Could he do anything? What would he find? Some people need to get loose. Whether it was the beer or something more cosmic, Sander was playing some of the best backgammon of his life. What a comeback oh. from Sander Lilov. He was dead and buried. I don't know how he did it, to be honest. Wow. What a comeback. We have a crowd of 80 people here in the room watching the match. Wow, what a oh, match. Incredible stuff. Feel, I feel bad for Wilcox, to be honest. He played yeah, incredible. Heartbreaking, he had heartbreaking. heartbreaking stuff, this. Okay. How the hell did Sander win this? What a comeback. Anything can happen, you know? Uh, it was sort of sad that you happened to him in this very uh, critical match, you know? But that's backgammon, you know? He, uh, he took it, like, uh, great, you know? I, I hope that I could uh, take it like that if it happened to me. I don't know him that well, but um, but we, like we we had this great match and it, it felt great. You know, it's like uh, 
Rocky Balboa, Apollo Creed sort of a situation. It, it was the best match of my life. In the finals of the tournament, Sander faced Zednik Ziska, who defeated Wilcox Snelling in the second chance bracket. Ziska needed to beat Sander twice to claim the title. Sander got off to a quick lead, and the outcome was never in doubt. He would become world champion. Before the event, Sander told me he didn't care about winning, but figured instead he'd try to play whoever did win so he could relieve them of their prize money. Now, he's the one holding the prize money, and his daughter has a brand new dog. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when, when you say something like that, you gotta, you gotta, you know, honor it. You gotta stick by. So she's happy, and, and you know, for some reason, it always means a lot to me to have my daughter, you know, uh, pulling for me you know she's got some special special energy um so maybe maybe i i won the tournament because of the dog sanders only half kidding he's constantly dropping little hints about his own superstitions about things he worries will set the universe on its ear and allow his opponent to roll better than him or things like this where good vibes can help propel him to victory it's unusual for gamblers professional ones anyway to admit to having superstitions. But backgammon is an unusual game that has a magnetism, a pull. For whatever reason, no matter what game people are obsessed with, whatever game they're experts at, they always somehow find themselves here, among the backgammon players. All over this tournament are chess champions, poker pros, sports bettors and bookmakers, bridge and gin rummy hustlers, pool sharks. You name it, they're here. Eventually, all the gamblers end up playing backgammon. In the end, Sander winning the tournament was a massive result for him and Alex. Well, you know, it's like at these tournaments that they normally do a side pool, right? So the, the side pool came to about 20K. Yeah, I have an old uh, betting buddy, uh, John Kuhnman, who, uh, who lives in Japan. And we did a jail bet, which is basically a former for the last longer. And I, and I took myself against uh, the great Mochi. <laughs> and so after, I think, Mochi won two rounds and he lost. And I won, like, ten rounds. So in the end, I, I won, uh, you know, we had a $10,000 bet every round. So in the end, I ended up winning um, 80000 know. So I had a good tournament. I, I, was quite, uh, I was quite happy. Sander also bet on himself with the tournament bookmaker. As did I. Oh, I, I think Morty ended up, you know, losing money. You know, he, uh, he lost on me. He could have lost more on, on other people. As I go to Morty to collect the 500 euros I won betting on Sander, I ask him what it was about this ancient game that drew gamblers like him and Sander and Alex into its orbit. Oh, it's just a perfect game to every single move, every single, and it's always risk reward and uh, uh, always multiple choices. And it's just very, and it's like when you get into it, you, uh, you just get caught up a little bit with it. It's kind of love hate because you also do get tired of playing the same game over and over and over again. But uh, at least for me, it, it's, it's like the riddle that puzzles me, you know, like... And, uh, Alex, ever the stoic, had a different, simpler take on what draws gamblers to the game. 
dice. People love watching dice roll. This is something I've done for 30 years. And uh, um, just the sound of it, the feel of it, and people are mostly addicted to the exhilaration. So there's a lot of volatility. So in any game of backgammon, you go from winning to losing to winning to losing to winning to losing. And it's very different from chess because in chess you drop a pawn, you're dead. <laughs> game over. Like it's just a matter of time and there's nothing much you can do from there. Whereas in backgammon you could be dead, dead, dead and then all of a sudden win. Let's go for the Sink. I'm back at Casino de Monte Carlo, 500 euros richer. The tournament's over. The backgammon games are done. The gamblers are all headed back to their homes around the world. But I was still in Monaco, crammed into a crowded craps table, trying to remember how to count in French. I'm not immune to the lure of the rolling dice. Now he's happy. He's your best friend down there. You're making him so much. I thought about what Morty said. It's the riddle, the puzzle. Here is a game, a balanced set of rules. Somewhere here lies a strategy. Now go find it and claim your treasure. But also, the dice, randomness, chaos. Despite your plans, your calculations, here the devil will find you and he will destroy all that you have built. Or maybe, just maybe, that chaos will help you. Maybe you weren't the skilled player you thought you were, but merely another rube who needed the devil to carry you home. Here at this craps game, in this casino, all of us were rubes. Sure, we may win a roll here or there, but our fate was sealed. It was only a matter of time. The dice would see to it. Sure as the sun would come up the next morning. That's the secret to backgammon. What makes it such a beautiful game. What has made it last for millennia. The dice. The chaos. The reason that people around this craps table can win, and the reason that people like Sander and Alex can feast on our bones at the same time. The dice obscure the truth of our situation, allow us to blame luck for our misfortune and genius for our triumphs. Are you the shark or are you the minnow? Are you the bug or are you the windshield? Are you a winner or just a sucker who got lucky? Most of us are better off not knowing. The dice grant us the dignity of never being sure. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. 
The show's executive producers are Juliet Littman and Sean Finnessy. Gamblers was produced by Bobby Wagner, Mike Wargon, Noah Malale, and Vikram Patel. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. Fact-checking by Daniel Comer. Copy editing by Isaac Levy-Rubinette. Sound design by Bobby Wagner. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. The theme song was written by Isaac Lee. Other tracks you hear in this episode are from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. And special thanks to Jade Whaley. Thanks for listening.